Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm very pleased to welcome you tonight to our most distinguished panel on the rise and rise of big technology. Now, as everyone knows, the pandemic has placed new communication technologies at the centre of, of all of our lives in a way that was, was not true until recently. And many activities, indeed this very activity we're engaged in tonight, have become largely dependent on it. But what will the long-term consequences be of this type of change? And what will the consequences be of this new, more acute dependence on these kinds of technologies, especially for politics and especially for work? Well, as I say, we have a distinguished panel here tonight, and I'm going to introduce uh, you to them in the order that they're going to speak. So our first speaker will be Professor Helen Margates, who's Professor of Society and the Internet at the University of Oxford, where she was previously the director of the Oxford Internet Institute until a couple of years ago. And she's now the director of the public policy program at the Alan Turing Institute. She's published a phenomenal number of articles, I think over 100 articles and books, broadly on the relationship between digital technology and public policy and politics. And she's actively involved in public life in a number of advisory roles for government. She's won all sorts of awards, including recognition most recently from the Political Studies Association, but with its premier prize, the McKenzie Prize for her book, Political Turbulence. Well, our second, our second speaker is Chi Onwura. Chi is Labor's Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Digital, and she's the MP for Newcastle on Tyne Central. She has a degree from Imperial College in Electrical Engineering, and she's worked for various private sector organisations in a number of different countries. Before she became an MP, she was the head of telecoms technology for Ofcom, the, the regulator, and she entered Parliament in 2010 and has been centrally involved in the development of Labor's policy in these areas for at least the last five years. Now, the third panellist is Polita Clark, who's an associate editor at the Financial Times. She's worked in various capacities at that newspaper, which I think can in a way be said to be now, as it may not have always been the newspaper of record. She was an environmental correspondent and she's worked in other capacities too. And prior to that, she was a senior writer at the Sydney Morning Herald, where amongst other things, she was their Washington correspondent. She's held fellowships in university organisations, including Harvard. And if you read the Financial Times, you'll know she's a trenchant, insightful and entertaining columnist. And you can find that every Monday um, at the, on the back page. Well, each of our speakers are going to speak for about 10 minutes, maybe 12. And then um, we're going to have a, a, a chunk of time for questions and discussion. But uh, before we do that, I would normally say, can you join me in welcoming our speakers? But I can't do that. So I will just clap for everybody in welcoming our speakers to uh, the LSE for our panel tonight. Thank you very much. So I'll turn to you first, Helen. Thank you, Robin, and thank you very much for inviting me and thanks to everybody for coming. Um, so as Robin pointed out, we're supposed to be um, at the LSE, but we're not um, because it's not an ideal world. Um, I did my PhD at the LSE in the 1990s, and I remember possibly even in the lecture theatre we would have been in tonight, this afternoon, listening to one of my supervisors, the great professor of public administration, Christopher Hood, 
give a lecture on administrative values. And I want to step back to that moment um, just temporarily and argue that we need to think about values, about administrative values, about organisational values, when we think about technology in this crisis. So I'll just start with a flashback. In that lecture, um, Christopher argued or claimed that there were three sets of administrative values, basically. A set of values around resilience, robustness, stability, um, the principle of reliability and relying on mechanisms like oversupply to ensure um, resilience at all costs. Secondly, fairness, honesty and transparency in public office. And thirdly, efficiency based on principles of economy, frugality, leanness of purpose, sort of lean and mean, if you like, about prioritising the cutting of costs. And he argued in that lecture that overemphasis on one of these sets of values can endanger um, the other two. And you can maybe satisfy two sets of values to some extent, but you can't possibly satisfy all three. And what I want to suggest is that um, in this crisis, we, we, uh, we have seen exposed, the pandemic has exposed an overemphasis on the efficiency set of values at the expense of the other two. And we need some sort of um, recalibration. So ever since the kind of earliest computer systems in government, I wrote my PhD about those in, in, in the 1990s, the focus has been on, on using technology to automate administration, to replace people, to cut costs, efficiency, economy. In government, um, in, in my field from the 1980s, that was reinforced by 25 years of the so-called new public management focusing on a lean state, outsourcing, disaggregation, breaking up large organisations. And it was further reinforced by a decade of austerity and cuts to, to public services, which we all remember very well. In the private sector, it manifested just-in-time production techniques, large-scale automation, huge resources pumped into the development of artificial intelligence and robotics, geared at replacing human tasks and humans, with robots and driverless cars and so on. So that's the, that's the kind of prioritization of efficiency. But the pandemic crisis has exposed in our approach to technology, this lack of the other values, particularly resilience. And I think that's um, manifested itself in two key ways. First of all, the digitization of everyday life. We're living our lives online. We're doing everything online. And where we can, we're working online as well. Now, the basic technology, the kind of nuts and bolts of it have, I don't know what everybody thinks, but I mean, to me, they've held up surprisingly well. Um, I'm quite surprised that, that so many of us have had surprisingly resilient sort of internet access. But it the other point is the kind of what we're doing on it, the digital platforms where we all now spend so much of their lives. This is what has really exposed the lack of organisational resilience in terms of safety, for example. We've seen a huge rise in online harms, an upturn in financial scams, grooming for child abuse, radicalisation, uh, what the World Health Organisation have called an infodemic of health-related disinformation um, about the virus, about mad cures for the virus. We've seen a tsunami of hate speech, particularly directed at East Asian people. And these platforms now are our critical infrastructure. 
And we need resilient systems to kind of moderate them, to deal with them. We need resilient systems of content moderation. But actually, at the beginning of the crisis, we found out that's exactly what we didn't have. So at Facebook, for example, it transpired that there were no facilities for content moderators who deal actually with the worst 20% of malicious and abusive content to work, work from home. They ended up automating various kinds of almost impossible to automate content moderation with fairly disastrous results. YouTube was the same. They conducted fewer human reviews and they openly admitted that it made for poor content takedown decisions. So I just wanted to point out there that, that this is the sort of forgotten area of living our lives on digital platforms. These things like content moderation, and that's absolutely crucial for resilience. Platforms have to be safe, otherwise it's like creating a state-of-the-art water supply and then filling it with water that is unsafe to drink. There's another way that technologies is affecting the other value that we need to prioritise, which is fairness and transparency, um, as well as the sparring inequalities that arise from the pandemic. We're seeing sort of technology inequalities, people who have decent internet access, laptops, skills to use them, those who can work online, and then those who can't and don't have those things. And I think Polita's going to talk more about that. So I won't, I won't go into that. But I do want to make the point that actually lack of fairness and rising inequality kind of reinforces the lack of resilience. Inequalities ultimately bring lack of resilience. Any mathematician looking at complex networks um, will, will, will tell you that. So there is a rational as well as a moral case for a focus on fairness. The other way in which lack of resilience is exposed um, in our technology during the crisis is in our kind of data science, our ways of doing data science, data flows, data modelling. Those two things should be ways out of the crisis. And of course, in some ways they are. We've seen massive attention directed at epidemiological model modelling, and rightly so, epidemiologists are the new TV rock stars. But there's a kind of problem with using data science to get us out of this crisis in two key ways. First of all is the lack of fine-grained, real-time data flows. We've seen over and over again really important weaknesses in central local data transfers or, or, the, or, or the importance of knowing how many people have died in as near as possible to real time. We don't actually know, have figures on, 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 on death rates and so on until about four weeks after the event. The importance of knowing in real time how many people have the virus through the test and trace systems. All those affect our capacity to use data science to control virus spread. For data-driven modelling, if you don't have that kind of data, it's like using one of those showers that has a time lag on the heat button. If you don't know for a minute or two whether it's turned hot, one of those old-fashioned showers, you turn it up to get more hot and you're liable to get burned. The other point is, is lack of integrative data science models. We've got a lot of epidemiological modelling. We've got a lot of economic modelling. But we need also integrative models that take account of the health situation, the economic situation, the state of play in education. We hear far, far less about models like that. And we do need them. We need them when we make decisions to close our schools or offices or any of the other measures that are being taken to reduce virus spread or recover the economy. We need them when we do things like calculate um, exam results as, as we find to our cost. 
So I'd like to finish by suggesting sort of two ways we can overcome these issues with the failure of uh, the kind of lack of emphasis on in resilience in the way that we have thought and should think about technology. We need to innovate for resilience. That's what I'm arguing. First of all, research. As I mentioned, a great deal of AI research and development goes into building efficiency through cutting out people, driverless cars, robotics, and so on, automating things that people used to do. That means, if you think about it, developing machines and technologies that can do what people can already do, like walk with, without falling over, playing board games, those kind of things. They might do it better and quicker, of course, and we do need those things. I'm not trying to deny that. But for organisational resilience, we also need technologies that can do what humans can't do, like bring together multiple sources of large-scale data together to aid decision-making, that integrative modelling I was talking about. That's much less glamorous than building robots, but it's just as difficult and just, I would argue, in this case, sort of as important. We have a, just launched a programme to confront that topic at the Turing Institute. We're calling for nine postdoctoral researchers, just in case there's any great um, data scientists in the audience. It's called Shocks and Resilience, and it's about building resilience into policy systems for the future. In contrast to that, in the crisis, innovation budgets across firms have been slashed. That's very worrying. Where there has been innovation in organisations, that can't just can't operate online it's often been dedicated at replacing humans and cutting them out altogether a more resilient approach would really involve thinking about our safety infrastructure for example making platforms resilient making organizations so that people can um, work from home and the last point there is regulation resilience requires regulation if we want a resilient organizational life we need to tackle online harms. We need to make our platforms safe places to be and to um, and, 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 and to do business. Um, the platforms are doing more than they used to to tackle spiraling disinformation in health, for example, particularly about the virus itself. They're doing more to tackle misinformation in this also important um, election coming up next week. But it's little and late and we can't rely on them that for that we must have a multi-layered approach and as well as new legislation um, the online harm the long-awaited long, uh, online harms bill for example we need to update existing legislation some of these problems are not new another issue the issues about inequalities in the workplace for example um, take a look at the institute for future of work report launched today which explains why we've got to mine this gap in the regulation of data-driven technology and calls for an accountability for Algorithms Act. So many pieces of legislation like the Equality Act of 2010, they were just made when we weren't thinking about artificial intelligence or machine learning. So to conclude, we need some kind of recalibration of values that are embedded in how we use, how we develop, how we innovate technology as we go forward hopefully out of and beyond the current crisis. We need this shift from efficiency to resilience and fairness in values. And finally, it's, it's really about kind of taking back control, we, to coin a phrase. We tend to think about technology as if, particularly when it comes to work and replacing humans, we tend to think of it like sort of 
flooding over us as, as, as being a sort of tide that we can't um, do anything about. Um, and I think we're sometimes encouraged to do that by policymakers who talk about kind of mutant algorithms and uh, as if it, it wasn't something that anybody had responsibility for or, or could control. And I think um, innovating for resilience and prioritizing resilience would be um, a really good way to sort of take back control over our technological life. Thanks. Thank you very much. So we just move straight to our spe second speaker, Chion Wuri MP. Hi, and uh, thank you very much um, for um, thanks very much for the introduction, Robin, and thanks very much to the LSE for inviting me to speak here today um, as a, for, as a, a neighbour of uh, David Miliband MP for many years in the north of England, and then as the shadow digital government minister under Ed Miliband as leader, and now working with Ed Miliband as the shadow business secretary, I'm also in the shadow business team. This sort of extends my engagement with the Miliband family in a very prestigious uh, way. And um, I'm looking forward to a great uh, discussion um, at, at, the end, at, at the end of it. And thanks very much, Helen, for those opening uh, remarks, you know, and so as as Robin and Helen have said, you know, I'm the Shadow Digital Science and Technology Minister and the coronavirus pandemic, you know, and, and a chartered engineer, <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic brings my sort of brief to the forefront of um, many people's lives, of everyone's lives, really. And the fact that events like today are happening digitally is a testament to that. The pandemic hit our economy generally really hard. I, I know that as a constituency MP, and we have the figures to, that, that support that GDP shrank from between April and June by the UK GDP shrank by a fifth, which was twice the average of the OECD. Um, but the digital economy, or to put it another way, the parts of the economy online uh, that are online and not about day-to-day -day contact, that was the most resilient. The UK was already a global tech leader before the pandemic. Uh, London tech-based companies attracted 3.2 billion of investment in the first half of 2020, which actually outperforms Paris, Stockholm, Berlin, and Tel Aviv put together. That's a lot of investment. And so the, the UK tech sector went into the crisis in a strong position and e-commerce has risen by seven percentage points during this crisis, speaking, peaking at 33% of all UK sales, a third of all UK sales in uh, April at the height of the pandemic. But whilst we know that now, or in September, the latest figures, um, the wider economy is still about 7% behind what it was in the final quarter of 2019. So the pandemic has seen digital become central to all our work and social lives, our leisure, everything that we do, our, our online Zoom cocktails. Uh, and the, the Centre for A of Aging Better has praised the effect simple services like online grocery shopping have had on the quality of life for the elderly. And the ONS has found the majority of people have felt empowered by the ease in, by which they can access digital services. And Ofcom found that we, are, that we have risen significantly the amount that we spend, the time that we spend online, and the greatest rise has been seen within the older, older generation. But they that, and this has put this is um, brought to the fore some of the concerns that that Helen was 
was, was talking about and which, you know, as shadow digital minister and also as a professional telecoms engineer who spent 20 years rolling out the networks, which are now the internet. You know, I've long argued that government needs to do more to ensure a speedier, but also, and most importantly, a fairer transition to a digital society. And the pandemic has proven to be an unexpected catalyst for that. Now, back in the 90s, it's a long time ago now, but we often talked about how digital would disrupt uh, out the world. And at the time I was a director of strategy for a tech startup, and I had to learn the lovely word disintermediation to describe how the power of the internet would take out all those middlemen, middlemen, very rarely, occasionally middle women. So reducing costs, liberating value. We wouldn't need travel agents or estate agents because, or any agency because we would be our own agents. And the, and the internet did disintermediate. Travel agents you know, are largely gone, estate agents are under threat, and news agents make their money out of alcohol sales. But we are not our own agents. Instead, we have new intermediaries, such as Uber, Uber, you know, an example of a lean platform that seeks to provide greater returns for investors by squeezing increasingly dis desperate workers. And as Helen mentioned, you know, lean platforms own very few assets and they claim to have very few employees. If you're an Uber driver, you don't get sick pay or training or any of the rights you might expect if you work at a company. Though to be, you know, you know, um, unions are challenging this, thank God, and we have seen some progress. But as an Uber driver, without those rights, you still have to own and maintain your own car and pay for your own petrol. Uh, Uber is the world's largest taxi firm, but claims not to own any cars. And you know, that's one reason why they seem to be putting so much investment into the bike, Uber bikes uh, around uh, London specifically. So services such as Deliveroo and Just Eat have reported a surge in business of over 30% more sales compared to 2019. And of the additional 5 billion that has been added to the UK e-commerce market, 2 billion of that has gone to Amazon. Jeff Bezos' personal wealth, so not Amazon's value, but his personal wealth rose by 75 billion in the time of the pandemic, you know, at a time when many of my constituents have gone from earning decent way, living to being on universal credit. And so this is one of the reasons why the benefits the digital, you know, this was one example of which the benefits of the digital transformation have not been shared, you know, fairly. So the, the pandemic thrives on inequality and it has highlighted the digital inequality. And indeed, some economists argue that digital dri necessarily drives inequality because of the nature in which of the assets which are in invested in and because of the incentives which lead to, and I think Helen described, you know, as investment being focused on driving people out of jobs, if you like, rather than focused, rather than incentivized to invest in people to do better, more high productivity, high skilled jobs with the aid of um, digital as opposed to being replaced by digital. So the impact of the pandemic has accelerated digital growth and innovation, fantastic, but it's also created challenges and inequality is a key one of them. And that just isn't just economic inequality. I think the, the pandemic has also created new divides, but the, the existing divide is the digital in, uh, divide because you know, whilst the vast majority of us use the internet every day, a significant minority up to 10% are not internet users. And effectively that inhibits their ability to participate fully in the society, you know, in the economic life of our nation, as well as the social and leisure 
of our nation. Access to the internet so it should be a right, not a privilege. And this means providing people with the skills and the confidence, as well as the protections to engage in our digital economy, uh, as well as the necessary infrastructure and ensuring that no one is priced out of important digital products and services. But that raises the question, how are people priced in? Online platforms such as Facebook, Google, YouTube, you know, Instagram, they're a central part of our social lives and they play an increasingly important role in how we access news and information and indeed misinformation. You know, they also drive how and what we spend our money on, how we contribute to public debate and how we utilize our spare time. But we have little to zero control over how that content is created by the tech platforms and delivered to us. And that content is curated. You know, just because there's an absence of, of, of regulation, you know, that doesn't mean that there's an absence of curation. It is effectively curated by the platforms. Uh, as we, somebody kind of friends, we thought we were using Google to search the internet. In fact, Google was using the internet to search us. You know, taking our data, turning it into advertising revenue and behavioral change nudges. Um, but you know that data is not part of the um, the traditional competitive economics um, framework. Um, as I know, having worked for for Ofcom in terms of the definition of markets, it's on the definitions of of, of uh, anti-competitive behaviour. It's all about how um, prices are influenced. But we haven't yet got a way of reflecting the value of our data, and I think we have not yet got a way of of giving people ownership and control over data. Yeah. And that is why it is so important that we get the public policy response right. Now, the question I was asked was something like, uh, what is the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the tech center, sector? And you may have noticed that I have not answered that question. And that's because, you know, we are the answer to that question. Now that question, the answer to that question is de determined by the public, but while well, a general, but particularly the public policy response. And we've just, Labour Party has just finished taking submissions for our consultation into our digital future. Because this government has, in my view, as a, as a passionate technology evangelist, been almost criminally negligent in not conducting any real debate into the nature of our online lives, our digital our digital future and what are the principles and values which should drive that you know so we have seen existing regulations such as it is applied in a sort of ad hoc way to incredible transformative changes in how we live and work we need a debate which decides which which agrees i hope or decides whether it's right that facebook sort of decides the ethical rules for content or whether a government has a role in that i believe government does have a role in that i believe we need a set of digital uh, rights you know and and companies need a set of digital <laughs> obligations and we need a robust regulatory framework which is based on principles not on technologies because they change you know but on principles which can which are for which can be applied in a forward-looking way 
And so the pandemic, you know, it's a, it's had a, it's a huge, you know, it's a catastrophic effect on our economy. Uh, it's a catastrophic effect on the lives of so many, but it's also a unique opportunity to challenge the direction of innovation and our economy so that it benefits communities across our country rather than a narrow elite. As much as the government like to think it will, the market isn't going to step in and solve the issues that we face. And we need to solve new and evolving challenges with a principles-based, evidence-based regulation that reflects the needs and capabilities of everyone. And this should be what we mean by building back better. Technology doesn't have to be something that happens to people. Technology should be something that people, you know, and particularly government, you know, determine the long-term impact of. So the pandemic is and will have long-lasting effects on the way in which we work, socialize, consume, communicate, and innovate, and particularly uh, brought together with the with the fourth industrial revolution, and I haven't even mentioned you know, the internet of things and you know, Helen mentioned um, AI, et cetera. But that needs to, we need to have a, a, an intelligent debate about how, what our digital future should mean and use this as an opportunity to build that in a way that involves the talents of everyone and supports the um, productive capability of everyone. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'll just move straight on to our third speaker, Polita Clark. Thanks so much, Robin. Um, and um, let me echo Chi and Helen say how honoured I am to have been invited. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, so for the past three years now, um, my day job has involved writing, uh, amongst other things, 700 words a week uh, about the most interesting, compelling, significant or unexpected aspects of working life. And um, in preparation for this talk, I was looking back at some of the things I've been writing. It's slightly embarrassing to see what I wrote on February 10 this year. Um, it was a nice little lighthearted look at this odd situation in China where the world's largest work from home experiment seemed to be getting underway uh, because of what seemed to be uh, at that time a, a fairly localized outbreak of something called the coronavirus. So little did I realize, and um, I um, urge everybody not to go and look up that column again. Um, but um, uh, the only thing I'm pleased about is at least I did recognize that um, remote working was uh, some, uh, something of interest and importance. And as time has gone on, of course, um, the pandemic has forced employers of all sorts, all shapes and sizes to, uh, to accept uh, that uh, the shift to remote working is, uh, is, is um, something that needs to happen. Um, and, you know, for me, I think it's, it's made this year not just unexpected and, and uh, unimaginable, but also quite exciting and also at times quite unsettling. And that's partly, but by no means entirely, because of changes in the way that we use technology. Um, and it is, of course, this shift no, by no means uniform. Um, as we see from research that comes out on a daily basis, the impact of this crisis, as Helen and she have mentioned, has been profoundly uneven uh, for individual workers and um, for industries alike. And um, the recovery is on track to be uh, just as un unequal. So forgive me in advance for concentrating uh, my remarks on people and sectors 
that are at least able to work remotely. Um, obviously, this is not the case for, for everybody. Um, so let me just first say that when I look back at what's been happening in the working world over the last seven months or so since the lockdowns in March, I, I find myself um, dividing that period into four quite distinct phases. Uh, the first one was really panic. Uh, the first weeks of the lockdown were marked by huge amounts of confusion, fear, alarm, general uncertainty about how working life was going to continue when large chunks of the workforce had to stay at home. Then there was a second stage of mild shock when we discovered that actually you could keep everything from a bank to a call centre um, to a newspaper running with everyone working from home. When the FT discovered that you could actually put out a paper with everyone at home, we were, we were pretty shocked. You know, it was not something that we ever thought we would be able to do. In fact, we used to spend uh, a reasonably large sum of money on disaster recovery centres, as a lot of businesses do, just in the event that something terrible happened and we all had to uh, not be able to go into the office, or little did we realise. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's also quite sobering to think of what would have happened if this pandemic had occurred a few years ago when we were all on 3G, there was no such thing as Zoom. Um, you know, it would have been quite a different pandemic for many of us. But you know, as Helen says, the really interesting thing was nothing broke, really. The internet more or less kept on working. So did the water, so did the electricity. Um, and for many people, working life went on. So then there came this third stage that a colleague of mine calls the blancmange period, which is where the excitement of being able to work all day in your tracksuit um, sort of started to wear off a bit. The realisation dawned that you might be now spending months um, staring at the same backyard or same street um, and for an unknowable period of time. That then ended at least in the Northern Hemisphere with this glorious fourth stage of summer abandon where I think even some of the most law-abiding of us, uh, law-abiding and cautious of us thought, you know what, if it's good enough for Dominic Cummings and it's good enough for me and I'm going off to the beach, the pub, wherever, I'm gonna be doing my best to pretend this didn't happen. So it seems that I think we've now entered this um, quite difficult fifth stage where we know an enormous amount about what not to do in this new world of pandemic working, but not enough to be certain about what we should be doing next. Um, we know, for, for example, that some businesses can continue to operate with a largely remote workforce. We know that that can happen exceedingly well in some cases. We don't know how long they can keep it up, nor what impact it will have on staff. And we're not entirely sure about how to manage what seems to be, I think, inevitably a, a, a permanent shift to what people are calling this hybrid or mixed workforce, where some people are at home and some people are in the office and most people are doing a mixture of both. And we're certainly not entirely sure about, how about the role that technology should be playing in all of this. So what I just want to do very briefly is talk about a, couple, a few of the people and companies that, to me, have stood out in the last few months, um, either because they've done something clever or unexpected or smart to deal with this uncertainty, um, or because they've done something idiotic that I hope uh, people never repeat. So just starting first with the smarter ones and f focusing on them, really. Um, I think the companies that are getting through this fifth stage better than others are the ones that simply, um, you know, it's very easy to say this now in hindsight, but they were the ones that really many years ago thought quite seriously 
about practices that a lot, of, a lot of other firms discouraged or ignored, like flexible working. So if you look at a company like Dell Technologies in the US, um, they've had an extensive work from home policy since 2009. Before the pandemic struck, 30% of their staff were working remotely on any given day. 65% of them were only in the office for a couple of days a week. And so when the lockdown started in March, Dell shifted 90% of its 165,000 employees to fully remote work over the course of one weekend. Um, I'm sure that didn't go incredibly smoothly in, at all times in all places. Um, and of course, not every company has the capacity um, or, the, or the makeup to actually be able to achieve that. But the reason I mention it is because, you know, in, as with so much else in this pandemic, it shows that efforts that once seemed wasteful or wrongheaded or expensive have turned out to be anything but. And by the way, um, Dell claims that flexible working has saved it nearly $40 million since 2014, partly on lower office costs. So you might say, well, you know, a technology company would do that. And um, obviously, as I say, technology has been central to the way in which we've worked remotely this year, not least with this ubiquitous uh, Zoom call situation we're all in. But it's actually the, the very human ways that technology is being deployed that I think, um, for the moment anyway, is really far more important. And so one of the biggest problems with remote working is the difficulty of keeping a large number of people informed and up to date and connected to an organisation when almost everyone's working from home. And along with that is a concern that uh, that was raised with me recently, actually, by um, a senior executive from Mars, the the, the food company, not the, not the planet. Uh, and he said that he was not at all worried, worried really, about remote working itself. Um, he didn't think it was going to drive down productivity, which obviously some employers think. But he was really worried about how it was going to erode a sense of belonging especially for younger workers um, or new recruits to the company with, with very little history um, in the organisation. So when it comes to actually figuring out what to do about this, I think, you know, we're still at base camp, despite all the Zoom, Slack, Google Meet, Google Hangouts, everything that we've got, um, which on the one hand is making things much easier. On the other hand, I think it's a mistake to be seduced by the idea that this technology is going to make working life as easy as some people think. So what I think does work, though, um, for example, is um, a situation that's happening in the US. Um, I recently spoke to quite a, a senior member of this large investment management firm um, based in New York. It does something that I think a lot of organisations should at least be thinking about. It uh, is letting anybody in the firm dial into their investment committee meeting. So um, the, that means that anybody in compliance or real estate or legal anywhere can can listen in as some of the most senior people in the company present pitches and make some of the most central decisions for the firm. And when he told me this, I was really quite shocked because, you know, this is really quite sensitive, confidential financial data. Um, he said that, of course, confidentiality was crucial, um, but nothing had leaked so far. He didn't think it would. Uh, and more importantly, it was a really good way to let everybody in the company, but particularly young people, see how the place worked and understand, you know, learn firsthand what the business was doing and how it went about it. You know, you could see what was expected of you if you were making a presentation, who's who in the zoo and so on. 
And the other reason I think for allowing this sort of transparency to occur is that it makes inevitably employees feel more trusted and responsible and committed to the organisation. Um, and as it happens, that this sort of openness is a hallmark of one company that's become even more famous during the pandemic. That's Netflix. Um, and many of you will probably know that its co-founder, Reed Hastings, thinks that it, uh, they're probably the only public company that shares their financial results with staff in the weeks before each financial quarter. So they send this data out to about 700 odd top managers. Um, as of this year, it had never leaked. And um, Mr. Hastings says, even if it does, he's got no intention of ever going back because he just thinks it's this tremendously important symbol of how much the company trusts its employees to act responsibly. So I think that willingness to be more open is going to be needed in this world that is inevitably going to be shifting to this more um, hybrid working, a way of working. Now, this, as I say, this hybrid way of working um, seemed to me to be incredibly sensible when I first started thinking about it a few months ago. Um, you know, you basically, we've all understood now that we can ditch this five days a week, nine to five way of working, the horrible commute, we don't need that. But at the same time, we do need to meet each other in person if at all possible. And there's some forms of work that are just done better and faster in person. So why not have a mixture of it? So um, it was only after speaking to a Dutchman called Sid Sibrandi, who um, is the chief executive and co-founder of uh, what was until the pandemic, the world's largest remote working company, um, that I realized that the, the problems with this. Um, so this, this company is called GitLab. It's a software development company. None of its 1,300 employees uh, work in an office. And Mr. Sabrandi thinks for quite plausible reasons, I think, that when conventional companies start to try to introduce this hybrid way of working, they're going to really struggle and a lot will fail. Partly, be, mostly because they don't know how to do remote working properly. They haven't really thought about it as much as a company like his. So they don't know, for example that they need to stay at home a lot themselves, the senior leaders, because if they don't, they'll be sending a message that remote workers know all too well, which is if you want to get ahead, you go to the office, you get eye time, seeing time, you get, you get noticed. They also won't really understand the importance of written rules, he thinks, on everything from how you hold meetings to how you communicate. So GitLab has rules on all of this, right down to when you should use Zoom, when you should use Slack, when to use email, when to use Google Docs. And most importantly, he thinks that um, most leaders haven't thought enough about how much time and effort is needed to use technology to stop staff at home feeling disengaged and adrift. And so GitLab encourages everyone to have these 25-minute coffee chats, one-on-one -on -one video chats um, with people, someone else in the company, doesn't matter where or when, um, uh, where you basically just talk about anything uh, and it doesn't have to be anything to do with work. So new recruits are supposed to do at least 10 of these. Um, frankly, it would drive me mad. It would drive me nuts. It's not something I would really relish, but I can completely understand why for new recruits in particular, it's a great idea. And so would a lot. the same goes for a lot of their other rules. So I guess the point is that... Um, I think it's true that you need to be very careful and intentional about a lot of the work practices that we've taken for granted in an office setting. So um, with just an eye on the time, I'll just finally just quickly mention um, the organisations I think are doing less admirable things that I hope nobody else emulates. 
Um, the worst by far uh, is the long and quite worrying list of businesses that have allegedly banned their employees from alerting colleagues to a virus outbreak. I say allegedly because this is what is, um, we're starting to see in hundreds of claims that are being filed with bodies like the National Labor Relations Board in the US against some very, very large retailers, airlines, um, fast food companies. Um, a lot of these companies deny that they're actively trying to punish staff. Uh, some of the small ones actually don't deny it. But the, the point is, even though, you know, of course, some employees um, don't want to broadcast their health status, but most very much want and need to know if someone they work with has been infected. So I think, you know, trying to protect a company's reputation at the expense of employee health seems uh, quite foolish to me. Uh, so just to conclude, you know, I think COVID will ultimately, at least I hope, be a force for good at work. It's already exposed presenteeism for the wasteful idiocy that uh, it always was. We now know it's possible to be just as productive, if not more so when working from home, even if we don't know quite how long that's going to last. We've also learned that working life doesn't need to include horrible long commutes and pret sandwiches at your desk. As for what comes next, um, I think we know also that pretending to have all the answers at a time like this uh, is pointless. It's almost as pointless probably as um, pretending the future of work is going to be exactly the same as it is, but I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Polita. I'm, I'm actually just going to um, take the chance to ask each of you one short question, and perhaps um, I, I should be succinct and maybe encourage you to be succinct too, because we have a, quite a few people who want to ask questions. So I'm, ju I'm just going to start with Helen. I mean, you set out a series of developments that have been taking place prior to the pandemic, and you suggested things that ought to be done to uh, change the direction in certain regards with respect to research and regulation. But what I wanted to ask you was whether you think the pandemic is speeding up those changes itself or whether the underlying processes have really been the same as they were prior to that and the issues are really similar. Well, it's a, it, it, it's a good point about the pandemic forcing us to innovate. I mean, it's like the cartoon, you know, what's the greatest source of innovation in your company, COVID-19, you know. And, I mean... I think there is a sense in which it's been a massive shock to some systems like universities, for example, where, where I work. Um, you know, we've been talking about moving on, on and where we are now. You know, we've been talking about moving online for about 20 years, but we didn't really mean to actually sort of do it like completely. And um, we did it. We had to do it in a week. And the same with primary healthcare services, actually, you know, it's, it's, it's astonishing. So it has been a source of, of, of new sorts of innovation. And some of the things I talked about, you know, this problem with equality in the workplace, for example, and the way the technology um, treats people unequally, um, you, you know, that predates the, the, the pandemic. And it's just you, you, you know getting worse I mean it was something we needed to tackle anyway but I mean just one last point I mean with the with the kind of forced innovation I do think especially uh, thinking about what what what, what uh, and Petita said I mean we we really and I hate to be an academic always saying further research needed but I mean we really need to be researching this um, we really there's a massive natural experiment there with all these things that have moved online and um, uh, in, in, in a hurry. Um, and there is so much research to do to sort of take what's good out of it 
um, and to try and reduce what's bad. Um, and I, it really worries me that I don't think we're really doing that and that there are far more people than we might realise here or in the audience that are thinking things will go back to normal. Um, everybody will go back to the office and so on. And it's so not happening. And it shouldn't happen as as we've all in our different ways been saying so we really do need to be researching gathering data and researching that massive sort of natural experiment thanks very much so um chief i can just address you i mean you set out a series of problems that have become highlighted and in some ways exacerbated by the crisis problems of fairness and inequality amongst others and um you, you sort of offered by way of a general approach the, the observation that there need to be ethical rules and that government has a role in setting those rules. And what I wanted to ask you was, you know, in, in, in the United Nations at the moment, there are debates between different countries about just this question. And the countries that are keenest on government having a role in setting those rules are Russia and China. And I, I wanted to ask in that context... I mean, that's obviously not what you yourself are advocating, but what, what's the significance of that for your observation that government should be playing an increased role in setting those ethical rules? Um, actually, I, I didn't quite say that government should set the ethical rules, but uh -huh. that government should set a regulatory framework and that mm -hmm. there should be a debate, a discussion, you know, and, and, so, and when I said that this government had been criminally negligent was in not leading and setting up that discussion and debate about the kind of principles on which a, reg, a, a, a framework should be based. Because obviously, yes, I mean, you're, you're right that uh, I wouldn't, I'm not sure... You know, I think in response to our consultation, the Labour consultation on this, we have received, you know, hundreds of responses, you know, many, mostly, most of those from individuals and from citizen organisations calling for greater or, and, you know, as to say, some regulation of the uh, tech giants, because we do not have a regulatory framework for them right now. So we're, we're in a situation where there isn't one, where we've the government put out a consultation on an online harms white paper about uh, two years ago, got, got a set of responses and still hasn't brought forward any proposals to to go to government to 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 parliament um so so you know yes china and russia etc may have are keen to put in place um well indeed have put in place and we, we have put in, we've seen that in the the the, the in China and the human rights abuses, the Uyghurs and in, in Hong Kong have put in place sort of their rules, but actually they are being, you know, they are being, which many of our tech companies are actually following, you know, whilst at the same time claiming here that it is for Facebook with kind of Nick Clegg as their head of public affairs now um, to decide what the, what the reg, what, what the content is and, and that, or Jack on Twitter to decide whether we of Trump's tweets are appropriate. You know, what I want is a broader public debate about that, where we come to some, you come to, you know, and part of the process of the debate helps us to become to a consensus where you know, not everybody may agree. And certainly there are those who argue very much for, you know, that free speech requires that there is, it's a, that the wild, that the internet is a, is a wild west. There are those who argue, you know, that the, the, mo the business model of the internet 
where it is uh, of the web rather, where it's driven by eyeballs, you know, and combined with, you know, artificial intelligence, which can tell the companies not only where your eyeballs are, but where, how interested you are. That is always going to deter, to drive more and more extreme content, you know, and that those algorithms, they, you know, that is it, the impact on society is, is such that it has to be done in the context of some kind of reg of a regulatory framework, and I think that is a response to is a response to technological change. And just to finish, I think it's an inevitable response. And we and I often say to the tech companies, the opposite of regulation isn't no regulation; it's bad regulation. We will get regulation, but it will be a knee jerk reaction to some headlines rather than the the consequence of in a sort of informed public debate leading to a, a principle-based framework. Thanks, thanks a lot. And, and just lastly, um, Polita, I mean, you, you gave a kind of upbeat interpretation at, at a sort of basic level. Um, you know, you said it was a force for good, which I thought was a, a, brave, a brave statement. I just want you to think about it the other way around a little bit and tell us what your reflections are. So, I mean, of course, it's nice not to have to commute to work but the reverse side of that is, in a sense, you're always at work and there's no time where there's non-work. And I, I wondered if you would reflect a little bit on that. I mean, the, the office is a way of creating sharp divisions between work and home. Those divisions were not always there. In Victorian times, people often did have to work in their backyard and manufacturing took place in a small way like that. I mean, are we heading back to that sort of world where actually you never get to stop? It would be a very different future to the one which people predicted a few decades ago of increased time for leisure and less time for work. Yeah, I hate to think that I've said anything particularly brave. That's very unnerving. But um, so I, I, what I, I, I guess what I meant by you know I, I'm ho I'm hoping that ultimately when I say force for good, I mean that we will see an end to the expectation of managers, for example, that unless a, a person is sitting in front of you or at a desk within eyesight, they're probably not working, um, which I think is a very human uh, and rather unfortunate uh, way that we've all become used to working. And I think, you know, the pandemic has clearly proven that that was, um, when I say, when I use the word idiocy, that's what I think, uh, that's what I was meaning. I think it's something unnecessary that's been um, disproved. You're completely right that um, I think this problem of... Um, uh, just never escaping work. Um, and, and essentially, it's not so much that we're working from home, we're living at work is basically what's been happening. And it's, uh, it's been, uh, it, it is a problem. I think it's not been a widely recognised problem. Um, in fact, I, I wrote about this just recently, because it's interesting to see the number of companies, all of them very large companies by uh, most, well, almost all of them quite large, that have started in recognition of this to give their employees days off. Um, so Unilever, for example, um, discovered that uh, since the pandemic started and since some large uh, share of their workforce started going from working from home, they, those people's um, uh, working weeks had gone up by about 9%. Um, and uh, they also discovered that of something like 90% of them were either working the same or more uh, or longer hours than they were before. So they decided to have this global day of thanks earlier this week. Um, they're by, by no means the only company to have done that. Um, I think, you know, that's great. It's terrific that they're at least recognising it, but companies are going to have to do an awful lot more to set the sorts of boundaries that are going to be required 
to stop what is inevitably in many cases, I think, just becoming quite, um, quite difficult, um, quite damaging and harmful ways of working. And, you know, it's, it goes to some, again, some quite dull things that people um, at the well, people have never really wanted to have to tackle it very often in uh, some organisations. It means that managers have to really think about how they're managing. And at the moment, that's very difficult at a time when organisations are under huge stress themselves. Everybody's completely frantic. It's very difficult to have the sorts of one-on-one conversations that are needed to make sure that people aren't burning out. But that's kind of step one, you know, what do we need to do um, to really stop this sort of problem from becoming much worse? Thanks very much. I'll just address myself to the audience now. Um, I should have made it clear in the beginning, if you want to ask a question, um, you should you should put it into the Q&A and then um, we can obviously not an, uh, uh, put all of them before the panel, but we'll take a selection of them. And I'm going to start with one of those questions now. If you do put a question, it's helpful to say um, who you are and where you're from. So this is from Iona Torkin, who's a student from Sciences Po in Paris. And she asks, um, lots of big tech companies have made big profits thanks to the pandemic. We've seen stock prices rise for these companies. Do you think they're in the midst of a tech bubble? Um, I might just um, use the opportunity to direct these questions to one person in the first instance so we don't use all the time answering them three times. So, actually, Polita, can I direct that to you? Um. I don't think we are, actually, if I, if I had to bet at the moment. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be racing out to buy shares myself, mostly because I couldn't afford them because they're all <laughs> so unbelievable. But I, I, um, I don't think so because I can't, uh, you know, I completely agree with, with what um, she was uh, mentioning in terms of the regulation that is required. I struggle still to see how that's going to come about anytime soon. And I think what's going to really prick the tech bubble is going to be regulation that, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll see it happen in Europe, I would imagine, depending on the outcome of the election, of course, next week before the US. But um, at the moment, you know, what's been done has not been enough to, uh, has not significantly changed the share prices of, uh, of these giants and their market value, which is just you know, just reached unimaginable heights. Um, so I, I don't like to sound pessimistic about this, but, you know, I think it's been st- quite striking to me. I don't know how many people here have uh, seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, um, which, you know, it took me a while to sort of get around to watch it, but I've been really struck by how many people around the world, uh, just anecdotally, have been not just watching this, but have been really struck by the message that it sends. It's quite tendentious. It doesn't go to any lengths to be p- particularly fair and balanced. But for those of you who have seen it, you know, it's basically just spelling out the problems that uh, that she was just, just talking about. Um, and the, the hunger that there is, I think, on the part of um, consumers for some form of regulation, you know, it's putting into, on, on the screen, it's reflecting what I think is a, quite a widespread concern about these platforms. Um, you know, eventually that will be tackled. I just don't see that it's going to be happening uh, anytime soon. Okay, thanks. I'll move on to a, a second question from Isla. Um, and perhaps I'll direct this to you, Chi. Um, do you think that the rise of Android technologies will mean more surveillance and less rights in terms of consent and data protection? 
Okay, so I'm not clear what's meant by Android technologies. Is this technologies on the Android platform or kind of like automation technologies and artificial intelligence? But um, in terms of do do I think so? Do I think that will make? I think you'll have to just interpret it how you think because we don't have the question to to uh, ask the interpretation of. Um, but the question just said, do, do, do you think the rise of Android technologies will mean more surveillance and less rights well, in I think terms of right, data protection? The, so to, you know, to go back to the, the kind of theme of the, you know, that technology is something that we can determine what happens to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, without any, without, a pro, without effective uh, regulation. I mean, the point that I made about um, you know watching where your eyes are on screen, so you can tell how interested I am in, in this in this uh, webinar, for example. That kind of surveillance. Combine that with you know facial recognition technology, which has many problems with it, including not recognizing black people often or confusing them with the background uh, because of the way in which the bias. And I think that's another issue that we haven't talked about is to remember that most of this technology is developed by a narrow demographic of privileged men. Uh, and that is it reflects, you know, their their lack of experience and 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 you know their world. And so it will not be. We do not have technology that reflects the needs or even the presence, you know, of uh, people of color, for example, uh, and um, the, you know, the example, or, or in particular, and of women as well. So do I think it will? Lead, I think it can do. And I think particularly this is why I talk about Android technologies. I mean, the Internet of Things means that your, you know, your home, your work, you know, it's just a huge data generator. You think you generate? You think you leave a big data trail now with all the cookies you're accepting or whatever? But believe me, when you have a fully, in, you know, fully smart home you know and will you know what time your child goes to bed you know how much water you put inside your kettle you know whether you have one drink or two at the end of an evening you know that you know so yes you know if that data is 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 only protected by gd uh, the, the gdpr sort of existing protections then that will lead, lead to both surveillance capitalism and the opportunity for governments you know to 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 use and access that uh, as well so again you know that brings me back to you know with but with the right regulatory framework this can be a um, empowering in terms of individual citizens understanding their own, you know, their own data trails, their own um, opportunities, and being able to to use that in a more productive uh, way. So the choice is there, basically. Thanks. So um, Helen um, Bindu asks. When we can't even get track and trace right in multiple countries, how can we say we're at the cutting edge of a big data revolution? Uh, yeah, well, that's a very good question. And that's at the heart of the point. One of the points I was trying to make, which is that um, those kind of not very glamorous things are the things that I think we really have to pay attention to going forward. We're beginning to learn that we really need some basic kind of uh, processes of information transfer, both from government to citizens to firms to employees and, and so on. Polita was talking a bit about that in the workplace context. Um, governments need to know what's happening about the virus in order to make decent decisions and decent policy. Um, and some of the most basic data flows um, are, 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 are not there. So that is a tremendous problem. And it also, I think, highlights 
it's not just about the technology that's the point um all the focus at the beginning of a discussion of contact tracing focused on this app you know that was supposed to sort of solve all the problems and of course it never could have been um in fact the contact tracing systems that are um working best are at local level and based on local organizational structures and a sort of organizational resilience of the kind that i was talking about um and um we we've just got to pay more attention to to those kind of qualities in our organizational processes even though it's not very exciting and it's really not i i think we do have this huge tendency as a, a kind of society and, and 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 commentators on society to sort of be attracted towards the idea of of sort of superhuman technology as superhuman intelligence um without thinking about how it can do things which are actually these quite boring things which are are actually really important um and which humans yeah can not be very good at so i it's a really good question i i i i don't think we <laughs> we we shouldn't be able to in in a way um and we do really need to kind of refocus a bit on what we try and um use technology for i think Thanks. So, so next question uh, is from Jim. Um, perhaps if people say where they're from, it's just nice for the rest of the audience. Um, Polita, I think it, it's directed, I, I'm going to direct it to you anyway. Um, Jim asks, do you think that presenteeism is really dead or will employees begin to slip back to the office to be seen to be working when bonus or promotion time comes around? How else can employees display their productivity remotely? Um, yes, well, I think Jim's definitely onto something there. Uh, that uh, almost certainly if you work in a company where um, bonuses are handed out and you're lucky enough to be in the pool of people that can um, access them or are going to get um, rewarded with one potentially, yes. Um, people are going to do that. I, you know, it's uh, this is... This is not um, a particularly new problem, really. Um, academics who have looked at uh, how remote working works understand very well that um, although uh, workers themselves are often much happier uh, to be working at home, they tend not to be promoted as quickly as people who are in the office. We've seen this um, come up in research um, repeatedly, actually. So, um, when it comes to finding out or figuring out a strategy for being noticed when uh, you're at home, that's going to be very interesting to see, particularly as people are now taking advantage of this situation to move out of city centres away from what the from away from their main offices. Um, you know, they're renting and in some cases buying places further out in the country, uh, so they're not right in the in the middle of the city again. Now, I think it's going to be quite interesting. Um, when offices or assuming offices do and do start to reopen again, uh, to see how many people um, feel as though they've got to come in more often or um, will come up with strategies like, I, mean, I, I do suspect that a lot of people are, for example, attending meetings online, on Zoom um, and making contributions perhaps just on occasion, not looking at anyone in particular if anyone's watching from work, where they don't, it doesn't necessarily need to be particularly um, necessary, but it's a way of showing that you're there, alert, engaged, and um, possibly ready not to be sacked quite yet, rather than a promotion, I would think, for a lot of people. 
Okay. Um, so, Chi, here's a question uh, that the uh, questioner, Gabi Santos, who's an LSE student, uh, directs to you. Um, and it's related to your remarks about knee-jerk reactions from the government. And um, Gabi Santos writes, it seems tech developments continue to outpace public de debates. How do we keep up or get ahead of the tech advancements when very few people understand the developments? And how do we keep such debates inclusive? So at a broader level, you know, you're, you're there in the political machine. You hope to be in charge of these things. How can the political machine get ahead of the technological changes? I think that's a really interesting question, you know, and having, you know, you, you mentioned I worked, I was head of telecoms technology at Ofcom, which is a regulator of communications technology. And I suppose I've got two answers to that in a way. I mean, first is that, you know, this isn't actually rocket science. You know, it is not, you know, in fact, what these, this is the, what we're talking about are the sociological implications of technology that has actually been around often for decades yeah. and you know which started started in labs whatever and is being researched and commercialized etc and, and, and you know amazing you know great innovations um in terms of sort of how it's used and how it's applied so whilst you know you cannot predict the you know you cannot predict the future you can look at you know existing technologies and how what look at what kind of implications they will have and, and we you know we did that in in ofcom and that's what um that's what a forward-looking regulatory framework is about but i think you're absolutely right to say that that do, it does require you know people with expertise in both the, the technologies you know existing technologies and and i think you know that right now of course the tech market means that those people tend to be very highly paid but interestingly enough a lot of people are motivated by you know making the world a better place and and, um, you know, given the right, and this is what so we're discussing, what kind of regulatory body should oversee um, an, any um, online or web regulator. And it needs to be able to attract the best people. And that needs to be about, um, you know, not only, you know, the terms and conditions, but the, the mission and the, the, you know, of the, the mission of the organization, which will be really to make a difference to, to, the understa to the understanding and the way in which technology is used and to make it so that it empowers you know everyone, and but then I think at the at the same time we do also need to increase the general level of digital skills, and yes, the level of digital skills in Parliament you know, amongst MPs and also in the, uh, our civil service because there can be a tendency to that still you know to for specialists to be looked down upon in this in the civil service, and we need to um, you know in, in value those people who can bring an understanding of technology to an understanding of so society society and public policy so it's about bringing those together so uh, it's not easy but it is possible it is certainly do it's certainly possible and doable and the alternative which is to leave our future in the hands of a narrow you know set of people uh, is 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 my view not acceptable can I just ask you to build on that with a very specific point I mean the United States Department of Justice has just launched a, a an action um, against one of these companies and it's basically on anti-competitive antitrust grounds which you, you mentioned earlier mm. is that something that labor would be interested in is that something that resonates with the british situation at all or is that something that britain is now really too small to have an influence over 
No, that's a, I think so, so. There's two things here. I mean, I think in fact, Helen put it very well. She said that, that you know that the web has to be safe for people to be online. So there's online harms regulation and a reg, sort of regulatory framework about that. But there is also very important way, very important sort of relooking and and giving the political will to our existing competition and markets authority uh, to uh, to to look at the as I, I sort of mentioned it, sort of you know like the new the markets in data and which which aren't being uh, effectively regulated and just one you know specific example when my uh, when Granger market in Newcastle central fantastic market went online on mass because of covid because nobody was walking through there was no footfall in the center of town anymore what determined the footfall to those shops was no longer the layout of the city or or you know that it was google and facebook because they control the advertising market and that's something that the, our competition market authority has, has you know has been looking at and that was not fair you know that was not supportive of a competition so absolutely labor would want to see you know an effective more effective competitive market and then we can have new innovative startups coming in and helping to reduce uh, the existing because uh, what part of the concern is that the existing giants use their power to buy up other companies and to put in place higher and higher barriers to new entrants and we would certainly look to address that Thanks. So now there's a question from Deepak Kumar from the Punjab University in India, um, and it's addressed to, to you, Helen. It says, could you explain your idea of resilience in digital society further? Are you implying resurrecting an element of agency in a society which seems to have been diluted by digital platforms? Um, well, yes, I, I think I am in a way. I mean, um, that's why I was talking about sort of taking back control. Um, but really, the idea of uh, resilience comes from, I mean, I mean, resilience has been a value uh, uh, in the past. I mean, it has been a value, for example, after previous crises, uh, uh, a, a lot of our sort of most famous institutions, you know, you could argue, the, the welfare state, um, the National Health Service, um, the United Nations, perhaps. I mean, you know, after previous crises, um, the kind of dominant values perhaps were resilience and um, also equality, because with crises and shocks and pandemics and wars and so on and depressions, you always get sort of spiralling inequality. So the two sort of go hand in hand. And I was trying to make that point, you know, if, you, if you've got very large inequality, it challenges resilience. It makes, it makes a, a, a country less, less stable. Um, so it is a question of sort of replacing in a way something that I think we've lost over the past 50 years. It just hasn't been a value that it hasn't been something that has valued resilience. Um, we've kind of operated in a in a kind of just in time going further than supply chains, although that that is an issue here, um, but going to a whole way of thinking that that you can do things sort of sort of just in time. So in that sense, I suppose it is a rather sort of old fashioned idea. But the point, the other point I was making was that you can use technology to build in resilience. In previous um, crises like um, uh, the Great Depression or whatever, I mean, resilience came with buildings and people and, you know, stuff. And I'm saying that having resilient data flows and new ways of sort of innovative ways of modelling um, data um, and doing data science and building machine learning technologies could be ways to sort of 
embed resilience in our organizational processes in our um, and, and, and in digital platforms, particularly the digital platforms of the, of, of, of the public sector and the whole decision making process, really, how we make decisions. Um, I, I, I don't know if you think um, think about the Ofcom debacle, you know, students couldn't do exams. So we had to have a way of. Um, well, yes, they probably could have done exams, but anyway, they didn't do exams and there had to be a way of using, uh, of calculating, of, of assessing grades without having the kind of normal um, uh, uh, mechanisms um, to do that. And actually, data science was used to do that, but it wasn't very good data science. You know, it was it was kind of used in a in a um, in, inadequate sort of way. It didn't use all the kinds of data it could have used, um, and it wasn't used with a good understanding. Coming back to Cheese Point, you know part of resilience would be the kind of skills you need, the, the kind of capacity you need, that regulators need, for example, to be able to do good regulation um, in a digital society. They need kind of a new sort of re regulatory capacity, which involves understanding what companies um, what companies are doing and what they could be expected to do, what could be asked of them in terms of content moderation. So it's all about that point of kind of capacity really um, and being able to do things in a digital context that you used to do in an offline context. Thanks a lot. Yeah, now someone's just put in the in the chat that it's obviously the school's issue was off qual, not off con, since we have um, people oh gosh, sorry. Party <laughs> sorry. about off con. But, I know that very well. That's a, that's a minor that's a minor point. We're talking about can, um, can I can I just stick with you for a minute with the next question, Helen? The Sahar. I'm not sure where Sahar's from. He, he writes. Uh, well, they write there from L S H T M. Um, and the question is, I think a suggested solution can start from fixing the taxation system and even the option of democratisation of big tech companies. How plausible is it to address these problems in this way, taxation and democratisation? So these are very general questions, but perhaps you could reflect on that. Well, actually, there was a really good point that Polita was making about transparency of, of organisations. And I think one of the massive issues with the tech companies is the lack of transparency. Um, and of course, transparency goes against um, their, their kind of profit motive and um, competitiveness in all sorts of ways. But I mean, I, I do think that there's something there in being able to demand some kind of um, possibly through regulation, but some kind of understanding of of um, of, of, of of what they're doing, how they're how they're moder moderating content. Um, I think it's it's a very it's a very murky world that, and we're very closed off from it. And these are vital kind of this is where our democracy takes place um, almost all our democratic life now takes place on these platforms um, as ordinary citizens um, and yeah we should be able to demand much more in in in, in terms of, of of transparency um, some of it can come from regulation but i think there's a lot to do with actually kind of working with companies rather than this the, the current situation is that you get a massive scandal 
It's like the point about bad regulation. You only get any change when there's some massive, massive scandal like Cambridge Analytica or something like that. And, 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 and it becomes possible. Um, and somehow we've got to find a way of civil society working with the platforms um, to do to, to, to tackle that issue, I think. Otherwise, yeah, it, it, it is a threat to democratisation. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I possibly got time for just a couple more questions. Um, the, 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 there's one here from David Lynn from South London. Um, will the pandemic reinforce the digital divide between the Russia-China camp of control and state-sponsored and the largely Western world of democracy and freedom? And what would the consequences of that be? Um, I'm not sure who to direct that to. Uh, the, the questioner asks for all speakers to address it, but I think that would take us to the end of our period. So um, it's your go, Felita, so I'm going to ask you to address it if you could comment. Good, good. The least qualified, always yeah. the best one to go to. Um, well, you know, reinforcing the digital divide, uh, I... At the moment, um, it's quite difficult to see that that's happening. If you look, um, for example, at what's happening in China with the Uyghurs, um, I, it's very difficult to see that the pandemic has uh, had a huge impact on the way that technology is used uh, there um, in uh, quite contentious ways. Um, uh, I, I hesitate to, I mean, I'm struggling to think of a way in which one would imagine that uh, Russia's use of, um, uh, of various forms of technology to pursue its aims in other countries has been tempered in any way by the pandemic. I, I, I don't see that at all. Um, I tell you what I do think is really interesting, though, um, and we've just seen this emerging just in the last couple of days or weeks, um, really, in the US, and that is a situation where the the um, traditional gatekeepers, and um, I'm talking my own book here a bit because when it comes to the news media, that's what papers like the Financial Times are, that to some extent, um, I think a few years ago, uh, we, we couldn't imagine a time uh, where we were really going to well, we, we, we could see that sites, other sites, news sites that were coming up and the whole um, uh, tsunami of social media discussion and debate was something that it was really difficult for us to almost sort of plant a flag and, and, and act as any sort of bulwark, get bulwark against. Just in the last week or so, just seeing how um, the traditional media's treatment of critical stories about um, Joe Biden and his son and allegations that have been made with, with little foundation, seeing the way in which they've been resisted by um, the mainstream media uh, and other forms of social media, I, I think, um, have not really been able to overcome that has been really very interesting. You know, I wouldn't have predicted that. Um, the, you know, it's, it's, I'm, apologies for people who haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, but essentially um, uh, some people who were trying to persuade reporters at the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere to run a story suggesting that um, Joe Biden had profited from his son's activities. Um, it, did, it basically didn't work. And so, you know, it was, it's been really interesting to see that form of, kind of backlash in a way happen 
Um, you know, whether it's just a blip and won't really amount to anything very meaningful, I don't know. But, um, you know, as with so much else that's happening at the moment, you know, it's, it's uh, something that you kind of watch and, and hope will last and without any real expectation that it will. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, look, there's a short question here, and uh, I'll direct it in the first instance to Chi. Um, how, uh, Amy writes, how can we create a regulatory framework that does not dampen creativity and innovation? Um, well, that's a great question. And I would say that one of the things that we, uh, when I was working at Ofcom, one of the, one of the great um, challenges and also the great concerns was to ensure that, uh, regu that regulation didn't damage creativity and innovation. But I would also say, actually, it's a short question, we could have a quite a long answer. I'd also say that's also, it's always one of the reasons things that uh, Facebook and uh, the big tech companies say, you know, regulation will damage creativity and innovation as if it will damage it more than the big tech companies buying up all the small creative ones do. I mean, what we, you know, what, what we need to do, what the framework needs to do is that is promote innovation and creativity by allowing, you know, by allowing a more equal playing field for smaller, more, because, you know, to be honest, smaller, more creative companies to grow. And also, you know, I think, you know, and I think really fundamentally in, in two further ways, you know, firstly, right, if, if we can have some kind of clarity about, you know, who owns and can, you know, control and offer data then that can i mean helen spoke really you know well about the way in which data data flows can be a um a a a, a sort of can be a way of really improving services improving people's lives but right now you know that it there's great data concentration in the hands of two or three big companies and, and you could argue government and a lot of lack of clarity about who who owns it and you know what people can do with it so by clearing clarifying that that would support much more innovation and creativity and then also by um you know as well as a, just a regulatory the right regulatory framework it needs to go with uh, ensuring consumers and are um, much better informed about you know digital rights and digital skills and that would also be actually that would also be a, a, a way of supporting creativity and innovation and just and just finally you know i think one of the greatest steps to in creativity and innovation in tech is the lack of trust people have in it now you know, you know, there are people, you know, and that does, uh, speaking as an engineer, personally, that's a, I find that really uh, soul destroying. So by, by having a robust regulatory framework, you know, it increases people's um, trust in technology. It also ensures that there can be new entrants, smaller companies can compete on a, on a, lay, on a level playing field, a better playing field. And I think that really does promote, you know, the creativity and innovation and the full potential of technology, which I'm afraid now we are losing much of that. Thanks very much. Well, I think this might have to be the last question. Um, I'll direct it to you, Helen. Um, Anne Angeli from Paris writes, uh, in Europe, healthcare is viewed as a human right. Given this health crisis, how do you view the rise of big tech in healthcare? <laughs> so this is not a small question either, but... <laughs> It has some connection to what you were saying about uh, data and digital. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so the question is healthcare is a, a right. So, uh, given the healthcare crisis, how do you view the rise of big technology in healthcare? And it's framed in the context of the idea that healthcare is a right. Right, well, I mean, yeah, technology has got a lot to offer healthcare, but um, 
sorry to repeat things that I and others have said, it needs to be within a safe ethical and regulatory framework. I mean, there's huge possibility for, and, and I'm sure at various level machine learning technologies, for example, were used in, 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 in right in the middle of the crisis um, to allocate resources and so on and sort of learn about, about the disease. And so they should be. But it comes back to the things that all three of us are, have been saying, I think, about, about transparency and ethical frameworks for using um, large quantities of data um, to kind of allocate resources. Um, it, it comes to transparency and trust and ethical frameworks and, of course, regulation. So um, I, I'm a huge optimist about, you, you know, the power of technology to make life better and to make health better in all kinds of ways. Um, but it has to take place with, within that kind of framework. Otherwise, it's disturbing. Listen, thank you very much. Thank you all. I mean, we've heard um, today from um, Professor Margates about how there are different values that need to be pursued and that the contemporary pursuit of technological change has sort of overemphasized efficiency and underemphasized resilience. And I think in that context, it's interesting to note that the Labor Party is putting a lot of weight on this word resilience more generally in its, in its policy reviews. We've heard from Chion Wura MP that um, new intermediaries have sort of inserted themselves into the relationship between people and their activities and that these have given rise to some anti-competitive practices and other inequalities which require um, a new framework of ethical rules. And we've heard from Alita Clark, who's uh, suggested that the um, pandemic has in some ways produced largely permanent outcomes or significant outcomes that will stay with us, and in many ways outcomes that have positive potential despite some of the drawbacks. And I think that last point sort of really um, captures something about the panel as a whole, who, to my ears, have a, a, a largely optimistic um, analysis of the situation we're in, which I think, whatever the merits or dismerits of it, serves an important psychological purpose in cheering us up in this uh, point in time. So thank you very much. It's an excellent panel we've had and an excellent discussion. And I'm very pleased that you've been able to, to join us and to all of our um, uh, audience as well. Um, thank you very much and see you next time.